good morning, church family. Got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 19. That's where Ni read from. And Ni, God bless you, man. There were a lot of difficult names in there. Wow. I know I always say it, but when you're reading scripture aloud and you come across a name that's hard to pronounce, sin boldly. Say it with full conviction. Nobody else knows how it's pronounced either. So just go for it. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you. On this week, following our day of national thanksgiving, we again just pause to thank you. Our hearts are filled with gratitude at your unmerited goodness to us, your children. Father, you're good to us in ways that we just take for granted. And so now we just pause and thank you. Thank you for family and for friends. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us in Jesus and saving us. And now, Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would bring your word to life. That we would love and trust in Jesus all the more and rejoice in so great a salvation. We pray this to the glory of his name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Well, friends, there's two things to note right off the top. The first one is that these unbelieving Jews show us a pattern for how opposition to the gospel always plays out. Their opposition to the gospel earlier in chapter 14 was that they were spreading misinformation. Do you remember that? They were telling the new believers that they shouldn't really believe that about Jesus. And that's usually how opposition to the gospel begins, misinformation. But notice how quickly that information war turned into a violent miscarriage of justice. Such is the escalation throughout the book of Acts. And such has it ever been around the world and throughout history for Christians. Friends, I don't mean to be a prophet of doom or gloom, but it appears as though the writing is on the wall. In the West, we are no longer playing a home game, and we can expect the opposition to rise against us in a similar way as well. The second thing to notice is not only how the opposition ramps up from misinformation to violence, the second thing to notice is how quickly the people of Lystra turn. It was a mere couple verses ago that they were saying that Paul was the embodiment of the god Hermes, messenger to the god Zeus, king of the gods. And now, they quickly and readily drag him out, stone him, and leave him for dead. It was only a few verses ago that Paul was preaching to them, Rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, hearts satisfied with food and gladness. And the crowd at Lystra 
is so easily persuaded to put together this kangaroo court and put Paul to death on trumped-up charges of blasphemy. Verse 1 tells us that this outside group of unbelieving Jews come into Lystra from Antioch and Iconium and persuade the crowds to do so. You know, it's, it was true back then and it's true today. How readily are the masses persuaded and convinced. You know, we see it in the Bible, but we also see it before our very eyes. Crowds are fickle, and praise is fleeting. Hang on to that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I just wonder what tactics these outside unbelieving Jews brought to bear to persuade the crowds in Lystra, to go from one extreme of loving Paul and his message to another extreme of stoning him and killing him. Well, if we've learned anything about human nature over the last couple of years, I would posit and suggest that they probably made use of a politic of fear. It appears to be the most ready and easy way to manipulate crowds and masses. Well, friends, we as Christians must be clear-headed. We must regularly be shaped by the warp and woof, the logic and the grammar of Scripture. Because in our world and in our lives, there are so many other narratives competing to try to persuade you, just like these unbelieving Jews in chapter 14, verse 19. Well, we're going to stick with verse 19 for another moment because what we see in this verse is a pattern that we've already encountered throughout the book of Acts. That the primary opposition to the gospel message, gospel messengers, and ultimately to the Lord God is coming from a particular group of people. Who is it? Say it out. The Jews. In particular, the unbelieving Jews. And so it's passages like this one and many others in Acts that have actually given rise to repugnant anti-Semitism. Look, we can't just gloss over this one today, church. We have to talk about it. Because anti-Semitism has been a global problem. It's been a big problem for a long time. But it's a pointed issue these days, is it not? We live in a world that feels more so than ever like we are on the brink of World War III in the land of Israel. And the challenge is, we as Christian men and women have to be very clear. How do we approach this issue? How do we resolve it? How do we think about it? Again, we are inundated with secular categories and secular metrics and secular narratives that try to put us into one camp or the other. And those secular narratives err in equal and opposite ways, potentially. It may be that you are a Christian man or woman and you have errantly misappropriated the biblical category of Israel. You've drawn a direct line between Israel in the Old Testament, chosen by God, 
to be his holy nation, and modern-day geopolitical Israel as a nation. In that case, when you see the conflict that's happening right now, you are going to whole hog, without reservation, jump behind the Israeli state. That's a mistake. That's a secular, not biblical narrative. Or maybe you've made the opposite mistake. You're looking at the so-called Palestinian people. You see them being presented as victims and oppressed by geopolitical dynamics, especially since 1948. And you've bought into the secular narrative that just because someone is losing or has lost or is oppressed, that there is inherent virtue in that. And so you are backing the Palestinians because, for goodness sake, they're oppressed and any good person would stand up for the oppressed. Well, friends, you have, in both cases, bought into a secular, non-biblical narrative and you are bringing that to bear on the issue. So what are we to think? What are we to think when we read Acts 14 about unbelieving Jews who oppose the gospel message, the gospel messengers, and the Lord God? What are we to think when we hear about the atrocities over the last week? Well, friends, we must be rigorously biblical. And so I, I don't think we can resolve this question in the next five minutes, but what I want to do is set out biblical categories for you to think about what's happening in the Middle East right now. Okay, you with me? All right. Three things. Three things that Bible-believing Christians bring to bear on the question of the conflict in Israel today. The first one. It is an undisputable fact that Hamas is evil and satanic. They are engaged not in war but in terrorism. They are beheading young children, kidnapping and raping women. And so if you are a Canadian Christian, you will, for that simple fact alone, stand with our ally in the Middle East of Israel. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I hinted at this just a moment ago, you will stand with our nation, national ally in the Middle East of Israel for that reason, because they are undergoing terrorism that is evil and wicked, and it is every sovereign state's right to defend its citizens and its borders. You'd still stand with them. But be really careful. Because as a Christian, you have to remember that Israel in the Bible does not directly equate to the modern geopolitical state of Israel. When you connect those two dots with a solid direct line, you are misappropriating the biblical categories and distinctions of Israel. Let's talk about that for a moment. God's saving redemptive purposes for his people can be traced back to a moment in the Old Testament where God chose the nation of, say it out, Israel. And he said, I didn't choose you because you were the strongest or the greatest or the most faithful. I chose you because I love you. Israel. 
Israel was intended to be God's ethnic group who were a light to the Gentiles by showing an entire world what faithfulness to God looks like. How did they do with that? Not so good. They failed. They continue to fail today. And so the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel is not ethnic national Zionist Israel today. The fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, brace yourselves, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Israel failed and fails in faithfulness to God, the Lord Jesus Christ is Israel because he is faithful to the Lord God and faithful to the end. And so the dividing line for all of humanity is not around ethnic Israel, it's around the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to the nations. And so he is the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan for the world. Now, if you're tracking along with that, you might think, well, exactly how does that work? I'm going to point you to just two passages of Scripture. I'm not going to unpack them. You can jot them down and look at them um, another day. So Paul, in Romans chapters 8, 9, and 11, has to address this question. What is the role of ethnic Israel in God's saving purposes? Well, Paul wants to address this question because, first of all, he is a Jew and he's like concerned for his fellow countrymen. That's one reason. The other reason that Paul finds it necessary to address this question and to clarify thinking around it is because back in Romans chapter 8, he finished the chapter by saying, what shall separate us from the love of God? Height, depth, powers, angels, demons. What will separate us from the love of God? And so, if you misunderstand the outliving of ethnic Israel, God's choosing of them, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you might conclude that God's redemptive plans in choosing Israel were actually thwarted. And so he had to come up with plan B, which was Jesus. That's why in Romans chapter 9, Paul says, look, it's always been the case. Not all Israel is Israel. There is an Israel of God that is a subset of ethnic Israel. In Romans chapter 11, he goes even further and he says, look, if you're a Gentile and you're a Christian, the only claim that you have to belonging to God is that you have been grafted into the branch of the olive tree that is faithful Israel. That's all how God's redemptive plans and purposes work. But the centerpiece of the plan is not the olive tree, it's not ethnic Israel, it is the Lord Jesus Christ by whom you and I now participate in the people of God, by whom even those who are ethnically Jewish have any claim to participating in the life of redemptive purposes of God. 
Back in Genesis chapter 12, when God is calling Abram and the nation of Israel is forming as an ethnic people under God, God's promise to Abram is, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And as God's redemptive purposes unfold throughout Scripture, we see that those who are blessed by God are those who are blessed in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Those who are cursed are those who are cursed because of their rejection of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. So you see, friends, it no longer divides that way. You cannot, in fact, Paul would say it never did. There is not a direct line between God's chosen people in the Old Testament and the geopolitical entity that we now call the nation of Israel. It doesn't work that way. So you support our allies in the Middle East because they are subject to evil terrorism, but not because you believe that they are the fulfillment of the Old Testament choosing of Israel. So does that mean, third point, that there is no special place for ethnic Jews in God's saving purposes? Well, the answer in Romans chapter 11 is no. While all of that may be true, God has a special plan and a purpose that many people who are ethnically Jewish will repent and be converted and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ before the return of the Lord. That's what it says in Romans chapter 11. That many people who are ethnically Jewish will bow their knee to worship and love the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be reconciled to their God and Father, not because of their ethnic standing as Jews. That's what Romans 11 says. So the crowds at Iconium, let's go back to our text, chapter 14, and read that now. They were persuaded by unbelieving Jews to stone Paul and drag him out of the city limits and leave him for dead. And if you think about it rightly, it shouldn't cause you any problem in reading that because Paul tells us in Romans 9, not all Israel is actually the Israel of God. There are some who are unbelieving Jews. He says, it's always been so. Romans 11. The Israel that is the Israel of God is the Israel whose faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is Jesus Christ and his gospel that is the dividing line for all of humanity. Many Jews will be converted in the end. That's verse 19. Okay, let's look at verses 20 to 23. So Paul has been stoned and beaten and left for dead. You know, friends, I think sometimes we read over these passages in Scripture far too quickly. And we miss the horror of it. Can you imagine an entire mob descending on a human being, finding the biggest rocks that they can, and pelting that person with rocks till their flesh is torn off, 
Their bones are broken. They are battered and bruised. And finally relenting, not out of mercy, but because they believe him to be dead. That's what happened to Paul. And so they dragged what was his lifeless, they thought was his lifeless dead corpse. They dragged it outside of the city limits. Verses 20 to 23, the disciples now gather around Paul. They nursed him back to health and brought him back to life. That's what it says. And then Paul, in verse 20, does something remarkable and notable. He rises up and he boldly re-enters the city. How about that? How does someone have that kind of dogged determination? That kind of boldness and bravery? Well, friends, I'd suggest to you that that is because Paul understood something that we all need to know. That his life was not ultimately subject to the crowds at Lystra. His life was not in the hands of the unbelieving Jews who persuaded them. His life was in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, that's what it means to be a Christian man or woman. We believe that ultimately we are in the Lord God's hands. Other people can bring their evil and their tyranny to bear as they may choose. But ultimately and finally, we are in the Lord Jesus Christ's hands. Let me say it a different way. Christian men and women have a bold confidence because we know that nobody dies a day early. And so Paul was convinced of this. He picks himself up, he dusts himself off, he goes back into the city, and he preaches the gospel. You know, more, for more of that in the Christian church these days, right? If you are a Christian man or woman, it's very liberating and freeing. You no longer fear for your life in a very literal sense, right? Your days are numbered by the Lord. But it also means that you are set free from this relentless pursuit of popularity. You can actually live your life not as a populist, not as an opportunist, but you can live your life from your convictions and let the chips fall where they may because your life is in the Lord's hands. You know, let me, let me say it a different way. If you're a Christian man or woman, you look at your life and you think about the various spheres in which you live, where you have influence and responsibility. You could list dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people that you serve. And while that may be true, you serve many, many people. But this kind of conviction reminds you that you have only one master. And you seek to please him. So this is Paul, right? He dusts himself off. He goes back into town. Verses 21 to 22. He then heads 
back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He is rounding out his missionary journey. These churches that he started in what we now call Turkey or Asia Minor, he wants to drop in on them one last time before he heads back to the mother church in Antioch in Syria. Do you see there in verse 22 why he wants to stop by and see them? Look at verse 22. He wants to strengthen the souls of the disciples. He wants to encourage them to continue in the faith. And he wants to tell them that it's through many tribulations that they must enter into the kingdom of God. Think about that. You see, Paul and Barnabas knew from the Lord and they knew from experience this weighty and heavy truth. That it's through many tribulations that Christian men and women enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a Christian man or woman, that doesn't mean you need to go looking for tribulations. Can I get an amen? Tribulations will come upon you. One category of tribulation that will befall you are just the tribulations and the trials of life, and those come upon people whether they are Christians or not. Another category of tribulations that will befall you are particular to being a Christian. Your gospel message will be opposed. People will write you off. People will uninvite you to parties. People will try to commit character assassination on you. And maybe worse, tribulations happen. But I suspect that when Paul and Barnabas were talking to these Christians at these new churches, they probably pointed them all to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's tribulations that are the entryway into the kingdom of God. And that's because Jesus was the author and perfecter of faith. Jesus is the one who laid out the map and the paradigm for how one enters into glory. Jesus showed us that it is a cross and death that leads to resurrection and to glory. Right? Jesus showed us that it is tribulation and hardship that ultimately brings us to salvation in the end. And Jesus said that a servant is no better than his master. If it was tribulations that led Jesus to the kingdom of God, then you should expect the same. And what was Paul and Barnabas' message to the Christians? He said, look, you, you need to be strengthened. You need to be encouraged. You need to be reminded to persevere to the end because tribulations are coming, and when they do, they will lead you to the kingdom of God. Here's how this works. Tribulations lead you to the kingdom of God for two reasons. 
First of all, because Christian men and women believe that even trials and tribulations serve a purpose under the good sovereign plan of God. Let me read to you what Peter said about that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So disciples here at St. George's, I know some of the tribulations that some of you face. You've shared them with me as your pastor. But so many of you faced with tribulations that nobody knows about. Paul and Barnabas' word to these churches is a word to you today. Be strengthened. Be encouraged. Continue in the faith. Because even the tribulations that you're facing today serve a purpose and will result in glory. Look at verse 23. So Paul and Barnabas have now encouraged these churches that they founded. They are preparing to leave these churches in Asia Minor, and they want to leave them in good order. So they appoint elders. They appoint trustworthy men. And notice in this passage in verse 23, this is not just a matter of good governance. This is a matter of godliness. They appoint these elders in the middle of a prayer meeting, there's been fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord, and so they appoint them. And in Scripture, the household of God is a larger subset of the same way that God orders the household of the home. He puts a godly man in charge of a household, and he puts godly men in charge of the household of God. Not only for good order and governance, but for the purpose of godliness. In our polity, those of us who are in holy orders are the elders of the church. And you know, an elder is not about age. You can have a young man who is an elder. When Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, he wrote to him and said, don't let anyone despise your youth. He said, when you're correcting an older man, entreat him as a father. So clearly you can have a young man who is an elder. Uh, eldership is also not about Christian tenure. It's not necessarily the case that just because you've been a Christian for a long time that you are an elder in the church. We've all met people who've been Christians for a long time that are profoundly immature in their faith. To be an elder in the church means to be a person who, more so than others, has their thoughts and their affections shaped by the word of God. So that you bring that wisdom to bear on leading in the church. This is what Paul left behind in these churches. Paul and Barnabas had a fasting prayer meeting and they appointed elders in charge of the church. 
because they knew the tribulations were coming and the church was going to need men who could lead the church in godliness. In the absence of that, the church passively co-opts secular values. In the absence of that, the church might even actively capitulate and cease to be a church. So he's moving back, right? He's, he's on his way back. He's planted all these churches. He's preached the gospel. And he's about to come back. Look at verse 24. And you can put up the map behind me. I thought it might be helpful. I've been referring to a lot of places. Um, Paul is now making his way. All right, I even have one of these things. Look, you guys impressed? I can't decide if it's cool or cheesy. We'll take a congregational vote afterwards. Okay, so it says here, what's the name of that place? Perga. That's right, Perga and Pamphylia. Look at verse 24, right? Um, so, so when he starts this missionary journey, he starts in Antioch here in Syria. You remember he then went to Salamis. He then went to Paphos on the island of Cyprus. Do you remember that back in chapter 13? And then he went up to Perga. And then he made his way up to Antioch, the other Antioch that's in Asia Minor. And then from there, he went down through Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. In our chapter today, he's working his way back from Derbe, Iconium, through Antioch. And he's come back down to Perga. Look at verse 24. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went to where? Italia. They went to the port town, the port city of Italia. Because they are about to embark on another sea voyage from Italia back to where they started, back to their sending church. Now this journey is often referred to as Paul's first missionary journey and it took roughly two years. They are returning back to Antioch, having done what they set out to do. Let me be more specific. They're returning back to Antioch, having carried out what they were commissioned and sent to do by the church in Antioch. What was that? Look at verse 27. And when they arrived in Antioch, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, their report back to the church in Antioch, they, they said, guys, it's no small thing. You commissioned us to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and you won't believe what God has done over the past two years. While we were away, we were preaching the gospel, and God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Dear friend, don't move too quickly over this. If you are a Christian, and if you are not a Jew, then it's in this great truth that you have been saved. Paul and Barnabas' message back to the church in Antioch was, we went on this missionary journey, guys, and God is saving people other than the Jews. 
They, they, these were formational thoughts for Paul who would go on to write those passages we were talking about, Romans 8, 9, and 11. Paul goes on his first missionary journey. He sees Gentiles converted. He goes back to Antioch and he's like, man, God is no longer just saving Jews. In fact, it was never the case that he was just saving Jews. Jesus is the new Israel. God's people include all who have been given faith to repent and believe on Jesus. It was never about ethnicity. God's people includes everyone who's trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and being reconciled to their God and Father by Jesus Christ. That's the message that Paul and Barnabas brought back to Antioch. And it's the message for you today. What about you? You're sitting here this morning and you would say, R.D., I know that I'm a Christian. I have the inner assurance of the Holy Spirit that's bearing witness to me that Jesus is Lord. I have repented. I have turned to him. God has granted me the faith to believe and I am born again. If that's you this morning, then my instruction to you is praise God and rejoice. That God would save a Gentile sinner like you, like me. But maybe you're here this morning and you would say, R.D., I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about Jesus. I even feel drawn to the gospel. But I don't know if I'm a Christian. Look, even that flicker of faith in your heart right now is a gift from God to bring you to the place of repentance and new life. Don't leave here today without being certain. That God in Christ can take Gentiles who are rebels set against God and make them into adopted children, welcomed at the table, given the family name, grafted into the olive tree by God in Christ, numbered among the saints, names written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, this is the confidence that sees you through all sorts of tribulation and trial and into the kingdom of God, that God has saved me, even me, a Gentile who has no claim to the redemptive purposes of God, the gospel has come to me, God has caused me to believe in Jesus, and caused me to be born again. As a Gentile sinner, I deserve nothing but hell and death, and yet God in Christ has saved me. Be saved, rejoice. If you don't know, don't leave here without certainty. So Paul and Barnabas now bring this report back to Antioch, in Acts chapter 15, they're going to travel south down to Jerusalem for something called the Jerusalem Council, where the leaders of the earliest church are going to say, man, look, all these Gentiles are being saved. What should we do? We'll get to that next week. Verse 28, but before they head off to Jerusalem, they remained no little time with the Christians in Antioch. You know, there is throughout Acts, 
such a rich sense of Christian fellowship. Christians who love one another, who feel responsible to and for each other. Paul and Barnabas didn't just leave the church in Antioch commissioned and then go off and never go back again. They went back with a good report. And then they spent no little bit of time with those disciples. What we're doing this afternoon may just be a church potluck. And you might think, man, that's just kind of what churches do. But would you spend no little bit of time this afternoon with us? And in that fellowship, find your hearts encouraged, strengthened, and called to persevere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that reorients and recalibrates our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our affections. I pray, God, that as we continue to dive into your word by the power of your spirit, you would shape and form us into the image of Christ. I pray that you would grant us the strength to persevere through tribulation with the confidence that the kingdom of God lies on just the other side. May we in all things rejoice and bear witness to your saving purposes in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.